DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, an in-depth look at how mass immigration is impacting Croatians who've chosen to stay behind. And how a medical student from Italy became the focus of a one-of-a-kind documentary filmed in the Gaza Strip. You know, every Western person usually goes to Gaza to teach but he's the first one that goes as a student to learn from uh, local doctors. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're going to hear stories from around the Mediterranean and North Africa. We begin this week's show in the Western Balkan country of Croatia, where mass emigration has left some villages all but empty. Croatia is no stranger to emigration and saw many people leave before and after the war in the 90s. But the current wave can be traced back to 2011, when Croatia joined the EU. In the time since, it's lost roughly 10% of its population, largely due to this trend, and is now struggling to find a way to deal with the fallout. Reporter Jennifer Collins has more. Slavonia, a region in the northeast of Croatia, is full of vast, flat, fertile farmland by the Danube and rolling, lushly forested hills, filled with wildlife and dotted with vineyards and olive trees. It's also full of abandoned villages and houses. Roofs caved in, bare brick exposed, retaken by nature and forgotten by time. This village, Donia Kasonia, once had about 200 people, but now there are just four, explains Maria Peranovic in broken English. It's a quiet place. Uh, so for, uh, She's standing by the roadside in work clothes, in front of the small bit of land where she keeps chickens and pigs and grows food with her husband. Chicken, we plant uh, vegetables, uh, fruit. Those who left were Serbs, she says. Many of them fled Croatia for Serbia during the Croatian War of Independence, or the Homeland Wars, in the early 1990s. That was during the breakup of the Federation of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was a multi-ethnic state, made up of six socialist republics. Many Serbs lived in Croatia before the federation fell apart, and each of the six republics seceded. They uh, scared and they uh, ran away uh, in uh, Serbia. And uh, this house is uh, burning, uh, uh, robbed, and this is, this is it. Before the war, the Croatian region of Savonia, bordered by Hungary, Serbia and Bosnia and Herzegovina, was thriving. It has some of the best farming land in the country and back then had lots of agricultural industry. But it saw some of the heaviest fighting during the war and most of the displaced Serbs never came back from Serbia. The war sparked a wave of people leaving and the population has been in decline ever since. But now the reasons are largely economic. Slavonia is marred by economic stagnation. People of Croatia in Dublin, they move because of our economic resources uh, very very poor and uh, lots of uh, my friend uh, goes to German and uh, Ireland unfortunately the University of Zagreb in Croatia's capital is about 200 kilometers or 124 miles from the village of Donja Kusonje that's where Kreshmer Avanda is a postdoctoral researcher in demographic change at the faculty of economics and business Avanda says Slavonia is among the Croatian region's worst hit by people leaving. But it's actually a problem seen across the whole Central Eastern European country, which has one of the highest emigration rates in the European Union. 
Croatia is one of a handful of European countries, alongside Bulgaria, Latvia and Lithuania, that has a negative migration rate. So that means the number of people leaving is higher than the number of people coming in. Well, actually, Croatia just conduct, uh, a year ago conducted a census, uh, and it showed that Croatia had a population decline of roughly uh, 400,000 people, and for the population of roughly 4 million, it's about 10%. So it's a big population decline in just 10 years. What's more important is that half of that decline, or more than half of that decline, to be exact, 240,000 people uh, were lost due to emigration to the rest of the European Union. Like most European countries, Croatia is experiencing a demographic crisis. Birth rates are falling, the population is ageing, but Croatia's problems are compounded by so many people leaving. The Balkan country has had three major waves of emigration. First in the 1960s and early 70s, when many left Yugoslavia to go to West Germany as guest workers, to make up for the labour shortages there. The second wave happened during the Homeland War, and the third wave started in 2013, when Croatia joined the EU and Croatians could work in many member states without any restrictions. Most Croatians go to Germany because they have family ties there from previous waves of emigration, but Austria and Ireland are two other top destinations. Poor job opportunities, comparatively low wages and underdevelopment particularly in rural areas like Croatia, Slavonia, all force people to leave, says Evanda. If you look at the, the situation in other uh, Central European countries, only two of them, uh, Slovenia and Czech Republic, didn't have significant emigration after joining the European Union. The Poland, the Hungary, uh, the other Central European uh, countries uh, also had high emigration rates after joining European Union. Simply the difference between wages and the opportunities is high enough to drive the emigration to those rates. Back in Slavonia, on the cobbled streets of the small city of Pajega, friends Karlo Perišić and David Matokic sit outside drinking coffee as the rain hits the awning sheltering customers. Matokic says hello to his sister as she walks by. Perišić greets some friends. It's a small town. Around 22,000 people live here, and its population has decreased nearly 15% since the last census. The two men also work together at a large local agricultural company, which supplies machinery like combine harvesters and tractors to local farms. Both are worried about what the future will hold because so many are leaving Slavonia, and there are few work opportunities outside of their current employment. Most people are employed in agricultural industries, says Matokic a 30-year-old technician who worked in Ireland for a year in 2016. Major factories are closing and only the small businesses get, get to do something in here, which isn't, I mean, that's, for my perspective, that's not substantial to keep the people staying in here. That's what I'm saying. That's why people either move to Zagreb or the people who are not moving to Zagreb, they move abroad. Barisic, a mechanic who likes repairing cars in his spare time for fun, agrees. I am in this type of job my whole life. From little age I worked with my granddad. He is also uh, repairing tractors and he's in agriculture site. I worked with him my whole life and I like really like this job and uh, for me uh, the only uh, opportunity offered after my high school is 
my job that I work now. If I stop work here, I don't know where to go because there is no job for me in this region. Three of the 18-year-old friends have moved to Germany. His father, a plumber, left for Ireland around seven years ago. He lives in the capital of Dublin, where he works on a construction site. His sister quit college in Croatia and went to Ireland too, where she now has a well-paid job with a big pharma company. Borisic speaks to them every day and says he likes Ireland. Still, while he finds the separation tough, he'd rather not follow his family if he has the choice. I like where I live. I mean, I, I was born here and I live my whole life here. I met some beautiful, uh, sorry, nice people and I'm at home here. I can't imagine leaving from here, uh, but if I must, I will go, of course. But I don't want that. Beristic doesn't think his sister will move back to Croatia, and one of the reasons is politics in the country, he says. It's a sentiment that Kreshmer Evanda from the University of Zagreb echoes. Politics in general is not improving as we would we would like. So a lot of immigrants would say that they left Croatia uh, because of the injustice, uh, inequalities maybe, and inequalities in cha- chances or inequalities in employment due to the uh, corruption in their rural area or a, sm- a smaller community. Because if you have just two or three uh, employers and both of them are public sector, then the corruption is um, touches you. It, it affects your life because if someone else has the priority for that job, there's there's not an t- alternative for you. If you look at the indexes of corruption, the perception of corruption, it's really high in Croatia. Evanda says the exodus means there's a lack of workers in areas like construction and tourism, but that the loss of residents and an aging population also means less tax revenue to finance public services, pensions and development. In areas that have been worse hit, it's a vicious cycle. As people leave, more businesses close and the economy declines further. It's an issue that uh, will persist in Croatia in several decades in the future. The demographer isn't optimistic about getting Croatians who've left to return en masse. But he does think lawmakers can try to stem the flow of emigration with policies that improve quality of life in the Balkan country. One thing they've already done is ease the tax burden on workers to increase wages. And Croatia is also inviting migrants from other countries like India to fill the labour shortage. But that's not enough, he says. We have huge parts of Europe which are declining in population and core of the Europe which has stable or rising population. And that should be addressed not just on the national level, but also on the European, European level. We cannot compete with German, with German wages, but one of the options is to compete with the quality of life in general. So uh, healthcare system, um, safety, uh, quality of environment and so on. Uh, so I would say that the package of the whole of the whole quality of living in Croatia could be one of one of the factors that could lower the emigra- emigration rate. In Chachinci, a village near Pajega in Slavonia, residents like Daniela Pusileta feel their government in Zagreb isn't doing enough. They feel left behind. I think we're neglected, very neglected, especially Eastern Slavonia. It's really forgotten. 
Bouchaletta is a widow with three children and she's struggling to keep her hairdressing business afloat. When she was younger, things were better in the town, she says. But in recent years, companies have closed and whole families have moved away. The 40-year-old is concerned she'll have to leave, at least for a bigger city in Croatia, like nearby Osijek, close to the Serbian border. But she hopes, like agricultural workers Karlo Baristic and David Matokic, that things will get better. I hope someone will recognise the state of Eastern Slavonia, especially politicians. They simply need to open their eyes and help us, help people to survive here and people to work. There are people who want to work and are used to work. They don't know anything different. They grew up on fields with their cattle. We can do much better, much more than now. Jennifer Collins, DW, in the region of Savonia, Croatia. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. Turning to the Middle East. The Gaza Strip is known for being one of the most dangerous places on Earth, yet it became exactly the place one medical student from Italy wanted to do his study abroad. The student managed to find a way to go as part of a European cultural exchange program called Erasmus, and then suddenly found himself at the center of a documentary film. Danny Mitzman has more. but I'm sure that I won't be the last one. (laughs) In 2018, Italian medical student Riccardo Corradini was thinking about specialising in emergency and trauma surgery, but he wasn't sure he'd be able to handle it. Riccardo knew the only way to find out was by experience, and there could be no better test than a hospital on the Gaza Strip. So it's come from here? Yes. And then explode like this? What you see there after shootings or bombings, you will be never prepared to this kind of situations, looking at this kind of wounds, damage to the human body, because they are completely unnatural. So it's always disturbing. A lot of people were injured and shot, so I had the chance to to learn how to manage um, gunshot wounds, and is the only place where uh, I saw this because in Italy uh, I had never. I was scared, yes, but I was more curious. I was more curious about a situation that was really different from the place I lived. Erasmus, for most of us, is a carefree, fun cultural learning experience. But sending your son off to the Gaza Strip? (laughs) Yes. Yes. I I, I can say that maybe they were more worried than I was. Yeah. (laughs) My parents. (laughs) But, you know, it was not a trip that I was doing alone with a rucksack on my back. I was doing an European program. Uh, proposed, accepted and offered from the European Commission. And so uh, I was comfortable with this because I, I, I felt to be protected. For filmmakers Chiara Avezani and Matteo Del Bo, Riccardo's story was instantly intriguing. 
Matteo was already in Gaza Strip filming another film and he heard that there was going to be the first European student of the Erasmus project actually the first student from the western world coming to Gaza to study and so we decided to see who this person was and we just went to Siena University and met Ricardo and we were really pleased by the fact that Ricardo was moved by a true human feeling he's not an ideological person he is a real doctor so he didn't really know what this experience in Gaza was going to look like and he approached it with an open mind we have a visitor from Italy, uh, student. Shukran to everybody for welcoming me. You know, every Western person usually goes to Gaza to teach, but he's the first one that goes as a student to learn from uh, local doctors, local surgeons, local professor from the Islamic University of Gaza. And I have to say that actually the medical level of there is very high. But as well as the academic, Erasmus is a social and cultural experience, something that Ricardo wholeheartedly embraced. Shukran. He will give you a lot of everything, but you take him to Italy after that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It was really nice to see how people tried making friendship with me because they are not used to um, see people, foreigner people. So they just try to talk with me or go around with me, have a lunch, have a brunch together just to talk of what's going on outside. But even sharing their culture, it was really nice. And the beginning was maybe a, a little bit tough because it's a place that has not only a different culture, but even the religion. So how they divide the day about their schedule. So it was a complete revolution in my daily life. You know, since I was young that I make this for Ramadan. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need help? I'm perfect. I arrived there with no one. And then I found a lot of people that they were really really happy to help me doing things and bring me out and show me things. I had really deep friendship and I'm still in, in touch with them. My name is Adam, Adam Jad. Okay. Adam Jad. Okay. I am, this is my car. Do you have a car? Yeah, of course. Ricardo's flatmate Adam in particular, who invited him for family meals and treated him like a brother. It's very moving for me to listen to Adam speaking about this experience that he describes as like the best experience he's done in his life because for them Ricardo was the only experience of the outside world they have ever done in their life so they really welcomed this experience as uh, a way to have a window to the outside world but four and a half months with a documentary team filming pretty much everything can't have been easy. They stayed with me for a long time, but not for all my Erasmus. And they were like living with me. They, they were just like friends in, in my experience in the end. They were not forcing me to do anything. They were just following me. 
a documentary is always building relationships with people you don't know. Uh, in this case, while we were building relationship with Ricardo, he was also building new relationship with uh, local friends. On top of this, you have to consider that Gaza Strip, as you know, is um, a blockade. So no one is allowed to get in and no one's allowed to get out. So the only real, really the only way to uh, shoot this film was to enter with him and being locked in with him for four months and a half. Capturing the terror of bombardment, Erasmus in Gaza shows some of Ricardo's most dramatic moments, but focuses above all on the transcendent power of human connections. In my opinion, Erasmus is cultural diplomacy, and I would like to be part of this. With my experience to be a little uh, brick in the wall, you know, to try to fix these problems, because there are many ways of course, and there are uh, the normal diplomacy made by governments and ambassadors and ministries and stuff, but there are even culture, cultural ways, so Erasmus, in my opinion, could be a chance to face it. Aya, my ribs, they look like little um, pum pumpkin. You know what do we call it in, in English? Birds. Birds? Yeah. We hope that with this film we were able to show a friendship story between someone from a Western country and those two million people that are living in this blockade. And I believe it's something useful for Gazan people to see outside, useful for us to understand what Gaza really is, probably useful also to open people's minds on both sides of that world. This moment, actually, it's really, really, really like uh, you win a million dollars. Gaza is not just a place of misery and troubles. It's a place where people live, where people have dreams, and where people want to improve their lives and their society and their culture. People in Gaza are open-minded in a lot of cases and they want to share their knowledge, their feelings with foreigner people and they are not scared, they are not scared of foreigner people. In some cases in our society a lot of people are scared from foreigners, they are not. Would he like to go back? Mi el mia, they will say in Arab. It means 100%. You are listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. We're ending this week's show with an absolutely mouth-watering visit to a Jewish bakery in the city of Casablanca. Jewish life in Morocco has a long tradition. Until the 1950s, Morocco had the largest Jewish community in the Arab world, with over 200,000 people. 
But many emigrated to Israel in the decades that followed, and today there are only about 2,000 still living in Morocco, mainly in Casablanca. There, a Jewish bakery called Madame Fall opened in 1930 and is still popular to this day. Anabaya has this report. It's presented by Ina Camules. If you want to visit Patisserie Madame Fall, you have to follow your nose. The sign above the passage to the whitewashed backyard with light brown floor tiles is rather inconspicuous. But the delicious smell of fresh pastries quickly makes it clear. If you're looking for the Jewish bakery in the heart of Casablanca, you're in the right place. The shop itself is just a small room. The counter faces directly out to the courtyard. The neon light casts a somewhat harsh light on the shelves. They are filled to the brim with small cellophane bags filled with biscuits and cookies of all kinds. A TV is turned on. In the background is the bakery itself, where small pastries are being rolled. These are dough rolls filled with chocolate and pistachios. They have to bake for a very long time. It's not without pride that the owner of the shop, Kevin Fall, shows all of the different pastries that they make by hand here. The small crowns with almonds are especially popular. This is a specialty pastry that the Ashkenazi Jews from the East came up with. It's very chocolatey and we added almonds to it. Kevin Fall has been running this Jewish family business with 10 employees for a decade. He took it over from his father, but it was founded in 1930 by his grandmother, Madame Fall. The gold-framed portrait of her on the shelf in the store shows an elegant elderly lady with short grey hair and clear eyes behind her lightly tinted glasses. A dark shawl is loosely wrapped around her shoulders. Pastries were her life's work. Madame Fall died in 1986, but she worked in the patisserie until the end. She came up with all the recipes, and her grandson Kevin still strictly adheres to them to this day. I tried to change something once. I used a little more sugar than the recipe said. Unfortunately, I then had to throw everything away. It doesn't work without a recipe from Madame Fall. In the beginning, most of the customers at the kosher bakery were Jews. But when the great exodus of the Jewish population from Morocco began in the 50s and 60s, many of whom went to Israel and later also the US, France and Canada, many things changed, including the clientele. Today, many Muslim Moroccans shop there too. Halal is similar to kosher, Kevin explains. We don't use butter, we don't use milk, we don't use cream ever. I know a lot of people with lactose intolerance who come to us because of that. Whether you are Jewish or not, it just doesn't matter. I'd say it's been about 50-50 for a few years now. So everyone comes to us. The Jewish community has shrunk not only in Casablanca, but throughout Morocco. It's estimated that the Jewish community in Morocco now only has around 2,000 members. One of them is this woman who regularly shops at Madame Fals. She came here today for a special occasion. I'm buying a birthday cake here for my friend. All of a sudden, a small backyard fills up with a group of tourists. Jews from all over the world want to visit Madame Fals. Since relations between Morocco and Israel stabilized in the 80s, many people have been drawn here, especially from... 
from Israel because my parents are born here. From biscuits to cakes for Jewish holidays and festivals, and even simply bread. At Madame Fals, everything is on offer. The store is doing well, even if the rising food prices in Morocco are also driving up the cost of baked goods. Especially on Fridays, shortly before the Shabbat, the Jewish day of rest, the queue can get pretty long. We also make the Shabbat bread, the challah bread, the bread you eat on Shabbat, the traditional braided bread with sesame seeds on it, like a crispy bun. That's always on Fridays. People are queuing up to buy it. Then I wouldn't have time for an interview. We have everything here. Rolls, bread, pies, croissants, everything you can find in a pastry shop. The patisserie has long since made a name for itself beyond the borders of Morocco. Madame Fah's products are also sold in other supermarkets in Morocco. And they're even exported to France and Canada. Maybe one day even more countries will get a taste of this beloved local pastry shop. Inuka Mules with that report from Anabaya. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, you can check out our website, dw.com, or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just shoot us an email at worldinprogress@dw.com. This week's show was produced by me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Gad Georgi. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany. Germany.